This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. I'm Jessica Knoll. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. He was a great kid, never had a chance to become a, you know, an adult. He's just a great kid who never got to be anything but a kid. That's Kevin Sova. His little brother, Kurt Sova, was just 17 years old in 1981 when he walked out of a house party after drinking copious amounts of grain alcohol and went missing from a Cleveland, Ohio suburb. Five days later, his body was found in a ravine in an area where his friends and family had searched in the days following his disappearance. But 39 years ago, the autopsy revealed that he'd only been dead for about a day or so and the coroner determined his death was instantaneous physiological death. There was still 0.11 blood alcohol content in his system, and there weren't any signs of trauma. So what happened between the time he vanished from the party and the time he was found not far from that house? To this day, Kurt's case remains a mystery, but we might be closer to answers now. Yeah, he's not a statistic. He's, he's a human being. I think finally he's getting treated like that. I think for the longest time he was just a number in a case file. And now for some strange reason, I don't know that we deserve it, but there's a lot of people out here to care. True Crime Chronicles aired two episodes earlier this year about Kurt's case. And then we joined CrimeCon's CrowdSolve event in Chicago alongside crime experts and hundreds of citizen detectives who came out in droves in an effort to try and help solve the mystery. Renowned expert, Dr. Casey Jordan, is an attorney, criminologist, and behavior analyst. In true crime terms, she's a profiler. I look at cold cases or even, even, you know, live cases where we're really trying to find a culprit. The analytical skills are the same, but I think what's really moved me about this case is because I am essentially the same age that Kurt Sova would be if he were alive. And I can relate. It's almost like a movie reel going on in my head. That party, those parks, those people, those cars. I was that 17-year-old in 1981. So the idea that you can get 300 people together, uh, ranging in age obviously from 20 up to 86, and they care about a 32-year-old case. That's what's really amazing. This this idea that it doesn't really matter how much time passes, uh, a cold case is worth looking at and people really want to, even if they can't solve it, they want to add uh, some avenues, some new thoughts. I mean, it, if it takes a village to raise a child, I mean, it takes a crowd solve to solve a case. She explains what a profiler does. It is investigative profiling. And it is really just the same work that detectives do, that investigative journalists do. It's just we put the academic spin on it where we actually crunch those numbers, do the statistics. It's all just probability. What the profiler really does is from an academic perspective, not from an intuitive perspective or not based on our emotions, but try to logically analyze almost like a three-dimensional tic-tac-toe board, you know, although it can be five, six, seven dimensions sometimes. Uh, All of the things that we're doing here at CrowdSolve, you look at the timeline, you look at the players, you try to reconstruct everything from every angle, and then we brainstorm. We try to just think, if this, then this. It's Boolean logic. If this person was there, if this person was lying, if 
uh, Kurt Sova left the party? Did he stay at the party? You know, you think of every avenue. I mean, it's it's almost like uh, programming a video game. And you have different alternatives that take you down different paths. And sometimes when you get to uh, the end of a path, you go, this is the most likely scenario that would explain and be consistent with every single variable that we have analyzed. But when a case like Kurt's doesn't have a manner of death, accidental, homicide, or natural, not knowing conclusively makes it a challenge. You come up with three entirely different um, case studies. One where it is foul player homicide, one where it is natural or accidental, and then what I would call a mashup or a hybrid, where you can see Kurt Sova perhaps dying of uh, natural or accidental causes, and then some foul play with regard to covering up his death or moving his body, which would be an illegal activity, but not tantamount to homicide. Maybe there was negligence, maybe there was neglect. I think a lot about, oh, these fraternity parties where people uh, get toxic alcohol poisoning and everyone panics and they, they try to cover up the death of their frat brother. And I mean, you think about these kind of scenarios. We learn a lot by studying known crimes. And we understand a lot about human behavior. So we can envision these different scenarios. And I am even open to the idea that Kurt Sova walked, uh, stumbled, uh, probably in a drunken stupor, to the exact location where he was found. It's unlikely, but we have to consider it. Uh, we can consider that he was abducted from outside of the party house and uh, spent two or three days in captivity and was dumped there later. We can envision that he actually died within the party house or wandered back in. Perhaps the, the other people within the house knew about it and perhaps they didn't know about it. Perhaps they discovered it later. She speaks to the group of citizen detectives and works with them in small groups dissecting the case files. You know, I, I, I lead every session by talking about how we are all subject to our own bias, our age, our demographic, where we grew up, what we think about these things, our prior training or education. And what I want everyone to understand is that they are subject to their own biases, but they also, by being aware of that, can open up their brains to this uh, concept that anything is possible, short of, you know, alien abductions. We're not going to entertain supernatural stuff. Looking at the case, could those handful of partygoers know something still today that they aren't telling? When I asked the attendees, look, if there were six or eight people at that party and they, they knew that Kurt died, maybe overdosed from alcohol poisoning, and they covered it up and dumped the body there. Could they all keep a secret? And it was universal, no, no, no. Six or eight people could not. You would have leakage. You would have somebody turning on the others. Uh, you would have somebody taking the reward money. And uh, I, I agreed with that. But then another uh, attendee said, okay, maybe not six, but maybe one, maybe two could keep the secret for all these years. And that really kind of opened up a whole different pathway of thinking. If that's true, then which person or persons at the party might have extra knowledge. And that, if you will, with our Boolean logic, opens up the possibility of finding those people and re-interviewing them. And perhaps in a new and different way, perhaps not by law enforcement, perhaps by an investigative reporter or a criminologist that they would trust and they would say, look, this is how it happened. I think that is TBD, to be determined. We don't know really what's going to come out of the end of this crowd solve that might lead the Sova family or law enforcement to re-interview people, maybe with the assistance of Polygraph, uh, maybe with the blessing of the Sova family, 
And if there is somebody out there who does know something, maybe the idea that people care, that the statute of limitations has run, that no one's going to blame them too deeply, and that having the answers is more important than keeping the secret after all these years. I think that's kind of the end game of what we're hoping for. The four decades old case first grabbed Newburgh Heights Police Chief John Majoy's attention four years ago. We caught up with the chief, some of those citizen detectives, and other crime experts to see how they plan on using this gathering of the minds to solve his case once and for all. We're taking a unsolved death case from 1981 where a 17-year-old boy was found dead and by an unknown cause of death. Had been missing for five days and we're presenting it to 300 strangers that are armchair detectives in a good way and analyzing the case, breaking it down and looking at it from a lens that investigators don't always look at it from. He's standing inside a Chicago hotel amid hundreds of what he calls armchair detectives who want to help him solve this case that's plagued his department, the Ohio community, and the Sova family for nearly 40 years. Well, we're at the point where this is not a case that's going to be solved by technology. This is not a case that's going to be solved by DNA. This is going to be a case solved by basically trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and look at what happened. And there's not a lot of physical evidence to speak of that we can go and analyze and put back together and say, okay, here's what we have, you know, with 2020 technology and 2020 standards. We don't have that. We st- what we have is we have people. People were at a party. This kid's there drinking at a party. He goes outside with a friend. Friend goes inside. Friend comes back out. Kurt's gone, our victim. And so, you know, somebody knows what happened. And there's got to be some sort of plausible reason why he turned up dead. And you know, maybe it was accidental, that's fine. But how did he get to where he was at? He was gone for five days. Nobody saw him, nobody knew where he was at. He's in the same exact clothing he was wearing the night he went missing. So all these things are just really critical pieces of the puzzle. And so by having people take a different look at it, you know, they may know something more than we know. And the chief is astonished by the crowd of people who came in droves with a commitment to uncover the truth and help him close this case file forever. It's, in short order, making the world a better place because they're helping out a stranger. The stranger is the sole surviving member of the Soa family who's here with us today and helping him get some answers for his family that they never got in 1981 or 1989. Majoy was a criminal justice professor as well, and what he knows is fresh eyes can make all the difference in cases like Kurt Sova's. It's just amazing that, that you know, they've got notepads and they got, there's writing notes on stuff, you know, and they've been, you know, I'm, I'm walking through the restaurant last night and walking through the lobby of the hotel and there's people out there with highlighters and they're just highlighting things of the case. And it's just incredible to show their passion for this. And I think that that is such a neat thing and, you know, it can really help law enforcement tremendously. Kurt's mother, Dorothy, was also investigating her son's case for years, also hoping to lend a hand to law enforcement. Her other son, Kevin, handed over her box of notes to the police when she died. She's no longer with us, which makes this all the more harder because um, this is something that she deserves. You know, this is something that their family deserves. And the police department didn't investigate it well in 1981. And had they done their job, we probably wouldn't be here today. But uh, we can't change that. We can only make today better, a, a better day. We can make tomorrow a better day. And you know, Dorothy's notes um, were very copious. They were very detailed. And 
you know, there was really uh, you know, people calling, or, you know, I heard this and I heard this, and she didn't go and dismiss anything that anybody said. She wrote it down in this notebook. But once the chief took over Kurt's case, he had no idea that it would take off like it did. In fact, the coverage, social media, and this event has quickly brought national attention to his cold case, which is a good thing since some of his witnesses are all over the country these days. But, you know, it's not going to stop us. We're going to go wherever the path takes us. If the path takes us a couple states away, then we're going to go a couple states away. You know, we've got partners in law enforcement that are very willing and able to help us. And so we're already working a number of different angles to that degree. That's important because someone knows something, somewhere. And events like CrowdSolve and platforms like social media open that dialogue wide open. Social media can come with its own set of problems, too. The disadvantages are going to be the rumors out there. You know, I heard this and I heard that. And, you know, we've had plenty of those roads traveled. And unfortunately, there are some roads you have to travel in investigation. But at the same token, if you don't travel that road, you don't know what you're going to get. As for the investigation, Chief Majoy is focusing on the time of death and trying to figure out when that actually was, a challenge for him and others, to say in the least. So essentially what we have so far is that... The time of death originally was 24 to 36 hours. He was found at 5.30 in the afternoon, which would have put his death from 5.30 in the preceding morning till then, uh, which is, okay, where was he at Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night? So that's basically about four and a half days. Where was he at for four and a, four and a half days, which is some of the investigative uh, leads or paths we've been following. But now that we're putting some of these numbers together in front of some of the experts, we're finding that the time of death could have conceivably have been Friday night. Okay, so let's just say he did die Friday night. Where was he for those days? It's just one of the puzzle pieces of the investigation that's missing. The first question is, where was he while he was alive for four days? Now we're asking, where was he when he was dead for four days? And for now, the chief says at this point, everyone is still a person of interest. Everybody at the party is a person of interest because they, everyone who had last contact with him. We have a couple people that, oh yeah, we'll talk to you, and then... All of a sudden, our phone number's blocked, so we're just paying visits to some people, randomly showing up at their houses to talk to them. And so um, you got to kind of wonder why people don't want to help. His cause of death is another stumbling block in the investigation. It doesn't appear as though that it wasn't a traumatic death, it wasn't gunshot, it wasn't stabbing, anything like that. But how's body get there? It's more plausible to think that somebody moved his body. And, you know, let's just say he died at the party. All these people are there. They're adults, they're drinking, they're carrying on, and all of a sudden someone's dead. Uh, are they going to call the police and be like, hey, we're having this party with underage kids drinking here, and one of them died, and, you know, will you come get him? You know, this isn't going to be that. So did they have a motivation to want to go and make him go away, and, you know, avoid the problem, you know? So those are all just a number of different theories. And those theories are what CrowdSolve attendees are looking at as well. Miranda George is one of those citizen detectives here in Chicago. She takes a break in between sessions to chat for a minute in the lobby. True crime has always intrigued her, and this is her chance to help with a real case. I guess the mystery of what's really out there in the world. You know, you can watch things on TV, you can read a book, but this is true stuff. And I guess just how do some people's like serial killers or stuff like that, how does that really happen in someone's brain? Mark Tamura is here with his wife as an attendee, but he also has an investigative background himself. 
I spent over 30 years as a firefighter, and since 2003, I've been a fire investigator and spent some time on the county task force investigating fires, and it's always intrigued me. Normally, investigations are very closed off, and this, I know this is a new way of trying to garner more information to where you get a bunch of different eyes on something to get as many different ideas and directions as you can to get answers. And I think as a concept, it's a, it's a very interesting concept. And uh, I hope there's a very successful outcome. Among Mark, Miranda, and hundreds of others in Chicago, some experts are also on hand weighing in and giving insights into how their jobs help solve cases like Kurt's. Jay Cherry is a retired FBI agent and runs his own polygraph business in Illinois these days. A lot of people think, well, if you believe the lie enough, you'll just pass that test. And that's simply not true. Other people say, well, what if you're on medications or what if it's been too long? You might not remember what happened because this is a cold case and things did happen a long time ago. But if, unless you have memory issues, you would remember if you were involved directly. This is a pretty serious allegation that we're talking about. You would remember. And um, like I said, there are many applications to kind of hone in the investigation and give it some focus maybe again if people are willing and able to take a test to either clear their name or to maybe come forward and, you know, clear their conscience. Here's how a lie detector works, both the examination and its examiner. It's not like the movie Meet the Parents where Robert De Niro puts his hands on your wrists and everything like that, but I, do, I have had training in interview and interrogation and in verbal and nonverbal communication and in statement analysis. So that does come into play However, the final decision when I give a polygraph examination is based on the physiology, the charts alone. But for the interview interrogation aspect, all those things come into play. So yes, the polygraph instrument itself doesn't make the final decision I do as an examiner. Polygraphs could be a turning point in Kurt's case with witnesses from the party he was last seen at. Because it's an old case and it's a cold case, I think there's still people that have knowledge. And one of the best ways to kind of ferret out that knowledge and try to confirm or verify different parts of the story, like they use the analogy of a big puzzle piece. You know, we're looking for pieces to this giant puzzle. And one of the ways to kind of resolve that is through polygraph. Uh, it's not 100%, but it's, you know, very, very accurate and very useful in this type of investigation. Like Chief Majoy, Jay says this case is absolutely solvable. Do I think it's solvable? Yes, I think provided the... Given the circumstances, I think there are still people that know something at a minimum, and there might be a little more information out there that would help resolve this matter. And to him, CrowdSolve is a lot like the FBI in a sense. I come from the FBI culture where they, they employ people from all walks of life. People used to think you had to be a lawyer or an accountant or six feet tall and have a square jaw, as they say. But one of the beauties of the FBI, and that's one thing I learned over the years, is that they have people from all different walks of life. Mark McClish is a veteran statement analyst and can detect if someone is lying, kind of like a human lie detector, if you will. I'm a retired Deputy United States Marshal. Uh, my expertise is in detecting deception by analyzing how a person phrases their verbal or written statement. And I came to uh, CrowdSolve just to give them a presentation on my statement analysis techniques so that when they, in their breakout sessions, analyze some witness statements, they can use the techniques to determine if a person's being truthful or deceptive. Analyzing statements is yet another useful tool for those being interviewed in Kurt's case. It's all about breaking down the words and sentences used when questioning someone. The key thing to look for is there's a general principle is that the shortest sentence is the best sentence. And what I mean by that, if there are words you can remove from a statement or a sentence, and the sentence is still grammatically correct, those extra words always give you extra information. 
not a truthful statement, it might be an adjective. I saw Bob in his blue truck. Well, you could remove the word blue. I saw Bob in his truck, it still makes sense. So the word blue gives us additional information. We know the color of the truck. It also indicates Bob has another truck that's not blue, and that's why the person made a distinction. But for deceptive people, these extra words are sometimes qualifying words. They want you to think one thing, but they'll, if you listen closely, they're saying something different. And the example I used in class today was uh, the attack on figure skater Nancy Kerrigan in 1994. She was competing in the U.S. Nationals. When they arrested the perpetrators, they're all somehow tied to figure skater Tanya Harding. And Tanya Harding finally came out with a statement. In her statement, she says, I don't know for sure what's going on at all. Well, you don't need the words for sure. You know, I don't know what's going on is a good statement. But she couldn't say that. That would be a lie. So she said, I don't know for sure. And a good reporter would ask her right then and there, tell me things you're not so sure of. Because two weeks later, she did come out with additional information. And so you're looking to see, did the person use extra words to qualify their statement? Or maybe people use words like, you know, I swear to God or ask to God, which again are not needed, but they use them to try to convince you that they're being truthful. The most important thing and signs to look for that indicates someone is lying. Just listen to what people are telling you. But I gave him some other examples to listen for. We also want to look at uh, verb tenses. If a statement's coming from memory, it should all be in the past. It doesn't matter if it happened five years ago or five, a hundred years ago. I mean, it's um, all in the past. And so if it's coming from memory, based on the rules of grammar, everything should be in the past. So there's several things you want to listen for in a statement. Uh, the other thing I talked about was when you ask specific questions, you're looking to see if the person answered your specific question. I mean, people give us answers all the time, but a lot of times they don't answer the specific question, which means they're absolutely withholding information. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, was asked, have you ever, ever built a bomb? He said, I never had my hand on one. Well, that's not answering my question. And so it means he's withholding information. And of course, he was uh, convicted and executed for being, a de for being the uh, Oklahoma City bomber. So you're looking to see if the person answered your specific question. It happens all the time where they don't. The other big one is, did the person answer your question with a question? This happens a lot, too. And if a person answers your question with any type of question, it means you ask a sensitive question. And usually it's a stall tactic to give them time to think about, well, how should I answer this question? You know, for example, did you take the money? And a, and a common deceptive answer would be, did I take the money? No. Now, they said no, but before they could say no, they answered the question with a question. And that's a classic way of doing it, by repeating the question. Dr. Casey Jordan's goal for the weekend is really all about Kurt's family. As a criminologist, everyone thinks that my focus is always on criminals, but I spend a lot of time dealing with uh, dead victims. And so I, the people who speak for them are their loved ones, their friends and their family. I would argue that I know the suffering of uh, the families even better than I know the minds of the criminals. And that these families very often want answers. They are in what I call a mobianate, an infinity uh, of, of suffering, because not only uh, do they want answers about what happened to their loved one, but they want to know that whoever is responsible isn't out there doing it to someone else. And the weight of that uh, really allows them to give me their blessing for the kind of work I do, going in and interviewing serial killers or, or uh, rapists or child molesters, not to glorify them ever, but to get answers that can help solve crimes and bring peace to family members. This may be the crowd who will bring the peace Dr. Jordan talks about to the Sovis family. And maybe the so-called love of true crime will ignite the passion in these citizen detectives. And maybe just maybe uncover some truths. 
because I do think that law enforcement does end up in corners. Their training makes them think in particular ways uh, that they don't want to break the mold from. And I think that what we do as a crowd is kind of break that mold and say, but let's look at this in different ways. It doesn't, it's free to try and it could get us closer to the truth. Kurt's brother, Kevin Silva, clings to the hope that someone who knows something will finally tell the truth. But he knows the ending to his brother's story may be hard to hear. I know somebody out there knows, even if it's not what we want to hear. Even if it, even if he died because of a tragic decision he made and he put himself in a vulnerable situation. Um, closure, I want closure. And then I want you folks to move on and help another family. So it's pretty amazing to, uh, to feel love from people that don't even know you. What this has done and what it can do for more families is bring national attention to a tragedy that usually stays within a small circle of where it happens. I mean, I'm 60 years old now. I'm closer to the end of my life than the beginning. So you stop taking things for granted. And keep your loved ones close. Love on them and hug on them because they could be gone tomorrow. And you definitely don't want to say, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. Do it now where you can. If you have any information, you can call or text Crime Stoppers at 216 216- 386 0024.